think we'll get started. Um, good morning and welcome everyone to the um, Closer to Freedom, Envisioning a World Where Black Women Aren't Seen as Angry and Unwhole workshop. Uh, my name is Denzin Bayul. I uh, am the Executive Support and Organizational Development Manager at Massachusetts Legal Assistance Corporation. Um, and it is my honor to welcome our presenter for this um, session today, Ayanna Wallace from Ujima Inc. Um, welcome, Ayanna. The floor is all yours. Thanks, Tenzin. We became fast friends before our session. So um, I'm going to go ahead and share my slides in just a second. Um, while I'm doing that, I was curious to know if there's anyone in this session that's been in a session with me before, if you could raise your hand on a little reaction um, and let me know. Um, otherwise, if you haven't, glad to meet you all, glad to be here today, and thank you for having me. So, all right, let me go ahead and share my slides. And... We'll jump in. And so there's a couple things, I'll just give a little bit of background on, but again, for our workshop today, we're here together to really think about what it means to be closer to freedom. Um, so really envisioning a world where black women and girls aren't seen as angry, aren't seen as unwhole, aren't seen as bitter and are really able to be dynamic and really able to be the full people that we are. And so let's go ahead and jump in because that's who I am as a person. Um, this is our grant statement. We always just share this to say thank you to our funders for their TA, their support, of course the funds, so that we're actually able to do our jobs and do the work that's so essential and so important to black women and girls. Um, if you haven't heard about Ujima, we are the National Center on Violence Against Women in the Black Community. We are one of the few uh, nationally designated culturally specific resource centers. And so if you've worked with or heard of Costa de Esperanza, or you've heard of the Asian Pacific Institute on Gender-Based Violence, they do very similar work to us, but we are again, really focused in uh, and embedded in the Black community. Um, so our vision is to create a world where Black women and girls are valued, respected, safe, and free from violence. Uh, our mission is to mobilize the community, to respond to an end violence, and then to serve as a resource to not only survivors of violence, but also to serve as a resource for advocates, service providers, law enforcement, folks in the general community, um, so really making sure that we're engaging with different people in our communities because everyone has a role in terms of ending violence at the intersections and how they are specifically aimed at or impact black women and girls. And so some of the work that we actually do or we always strive to do in our work rather would be to give voice back to black women and girls who have largely been silenced or ignored to provide a supportive community and to engage all persons in our community. So women, men, children, folks in the LGBTQIA community, folks who are gender non-conforming, um, folks who are non-Black but want to deal with anti-Blackness, want to deal with misogynoir, um, are really invested in, again, addressing those different layers of violence, like come talk to us because that's really the work that we do and the, really um, the lens that we operate from. So some, some some of the types of strategies that we use to do our work include policy and legislation, 
They have some senior policy attorneys on staff that are constantly on the Hill, talking to staffers, talking legislators, making sure folks are understanding language, understanding shifts in language and mindsets. Uh, we also have a research and evaluation work group. Um, a couple of really prominent professors are on that team as well, um, but they're constantly doing research into things like Black maternal mortality and the intersectional gun violence or community violence. Uh, they're looking at, you know, what's happening in the medical field, how is it impacting Black women generally, but how is it definitely impacting Black survivors who might go in after an attack, but then have to face microaggressions or might have to face uh, systemic racism as they're trying to navigate that system. Um, we do a lot around outreach and capacity building. So working again with law enforcement who are invested in making a change, working with prosecutors and judges who are like, yes, we know some things are going on in our courtrooms. We want to make a better, or we want to make a more sustainable change. Um, working with advocates who are like, yeah, we know that black women and girls, when they come to shelter, they're not really experiencing the same level of service as some other survivors might or they might not even access shelter because they may have heard some things in the community or the services that we provide aren't culturally relevant or specific enough. How can we do our jobs a little bit better? How can we do the work a little bit better? How can we engage folks in a more holistic way? Um, and then we do a lot around education, public awareness and training. So that's a lot of the work that I do, but going out into the community, talking with advocates, talking with community members. So we'll go out and we'll talk to barbers and hairstylists and elders in the community who are largely gatekeepers who know all the institutional knowledge from their community. Like we'll go out and talk to those folks because you have to talk to community in order to really understand how to best serve folks. Um, and so some of our specific areas of focus include sexual violence, domestic violence, community violence, sex and labor trafficking and institutional and structural violence as a whole. So we're definitely an intersectional organization. We recognize that even when you're working to address domestic violence, you can't ignore all the other stuff that is impacting. So you can't ignore if a survivor is living through poverty and trying to escape their abusive partner and what are their options, right? Like you can't ignore a survivor that, have, that might have come across the legal system in childhood that now wants to distance themselves because they're afraid for whatever reason, um, like what are their options then? Um, talking to folks about, you know, when you go in and you have to then deal with multiple systems that might not serve you the best way you need, what, where do you go after that? So really talking to advocates and service providers and folks in the system so that they're really understanding like, what do folks need and what can we do better? Um, and so before I jump into some of the workshop agreements, I'll just give a quick background about myself. Um, my, again, my name is Ayana. I'm the training specialist with the Ujima team. Um, I've been with Ujima for about two years. When I started the work, I actually, so my background is women's and gender studies. I'll say that. Um, I have both my undergraduate and graduate degrees in women's and gender studies. Um, my concentration was in health and sexuality. And my specific area of focus was in violence in communities of color, specifically intimate partner violence, sexual violence, uh, a little bit around medicalized racism, but structural and institutional violence as a whole. Um, and so after grad school, I went and I worked as a case manager in a domestic violence shelter for several years. I saw a lot of amazing things, met a lot of amazing survivors, 
also saw some really horrific and traumatizing and just abusive actions and reactions um, and policies and saw the impact that it had on survivors, specifically Black survivors. Um, so after shelter life, I went and I worked at the Maryland Network Against Domestic Violence, which is the state coalition on DV. When I initially joined the team, I joined as the lethality assessment program manager. So I was working on the lap, working with law, I was part of the national training team. So I was going across the country, working with law enforcement and DV providers on how to actually implement the lap, implement the protocol, and then better respond to high lethality survivors. Um, again, saw a lot of great things, saw a lot of amazing folks invested in the work and also a huge gap in understanding as well. Um, and so after some time on the national team, I, tra I traded to the actual state training team where I became the lead trainer for the state for a few years before coming to Ujima. So with all that to say, it's really, I might just give some examples of things I've seen or heard or um, give some examples of what I saw survivors experience. Um, obviously with their consent, I, I asked most of them, um, you know, very clearly, is it okay if we share this experience? And they overwhelmingly said yes, because they felt like otherwise their, their stories wouldn't be told. Um, so I might bring some of that into this as well. But let's go ahead and jump in. So I always put, I always try to put workshop agreements just so we all are vibing on the same page as we go through this workshop. We have a pretty clear understanding of how we're going to interact with each other. Um, so number one is active listening. I know it's really easy, especially when you're online on a webinar or whatever, to get distracted because you get 50 emails coming in. Um, as much as possible, try to ignore those if you can. I know some folks might be on call or it might be urgent. Take it if you need to, but then of course, come back to the group when you can. Uh, be present and silence that internal chatter. So my mom always says, I know you hear me, but are you listening? Um, and that's because a lot of times when we're having conversation, I might hear something that I might not necessarily agree with. So I start to craft my rebuttal instead of really just fully listening and deeply listening to what she's saying before I craft that response. And I will point out both of my parents are lawyers. So I understand that lawyer life and that mentality. Um, be open. Uh, remember that we're all coming to this space with different lenses, different lived experiences, different perspectives. Some things we'll totally agree on, some things we might not, but just be open to the conversation. And I will say that you all choosing to come to the session already sort of exemplifies your openness. Um, push through your growing edge. Again, folks are coming in from different lived experiences, different levels of understanding. So something that might seem very basic and like, why are we going over this? It might be something totally new to somebody else. Respectfully challenge each other. Again, we do not all have to disagree, but when we do dis or we don't all have to agree, when we do disagree, um, let's just make sure that we're being as respectful as possible and that we're not, of course, attacking anyone personally. Uh, lean in and lean out to the conversation. So if you feel like, hmm, I haven't been as vocal or I haven't participated in the chat as much as I might want to, just go ahead and push yourself to do it. Otherwise, if you feel like, yeah, I've been really vocal, just always, you know, give space to folks who might be a little bit more shy. Um, and then continue to have these conversations. This is probably the most important one. Um, there's literally no point in us being in this workshop today or having this space if we're not gonna continue the conversation. Um, because you know when we're sharing this information and knowledge and experience together, 
it's really helpful if we can then bring it out to our communities or bring it out to our coworkers. Anyone have anything they would want to expand on or have a question about from these workshop agreements? And you can use a chat or take yourself off of mute. All right. So let's jump in. I always, and again, some folks might have been in some other workshops with me. If you have, this is your time to shine, friends. Um, but I always try to take a very intentional moment to honor Black women throughout the diaspora, Black women, stolen African women whose blood courses through my veins, um, whose legacies have been passed down from generation to generation, Black women who have largely, again, been ignored in our society or told they're too angry or too bitter or too whatever to get help, but still somehow made it. Um, and so this is a poem by Gwendolyn Brooks. It's entitled To Black Women. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then we'll go ahead and jump into our content. Sisters, where there is cold silence, no hallelujahs, no hurrahs at all, no handshakes, no neon red or blue, no smiling faces, prevail. Prevail across the editors of the world who are obsessed and self-hunting and self-crowned in the seduced arena. It's been a hard trudge with fainting, bandaging and death. There have been startling confrontations. There have been tramplings, tramplings of monarchs and of other men but there remain large countries in your eyes. Shrewd son, the civil balance, the listening secrets, and you create and train your flowers still. So I think it's really important when we, whenever we're doing any type of diversity, inclusion, equity, anti-racism work, that we lay out the groundwork of like, what language are we actually using? And are we all on the same page about what it means for us? So we're going to do a little bit of that, just our grounding exercise, and then we'll jump into some more content. And I will say that one thing I try to be very transparent about is I have some notes here because I get really excited about these conversations and I go on tangents. And so as much as possible, I'm going to try not to do that, but you might see it. I might have to reel it back in, but just work with me. Um, and also, if you want to turn your cameras on, like, please feel free to. Um, we want to create space together and have conversations together. Hey, Rochelle, um, I see you there. Um, but again, if you've been in conversation with me before, like this is the space, this like shine, honey, shine. So let's go ahead and jump into our language. Um, I will also say that Ujima began as a program under the DC Coalition. So we always give them a shout out as well. And we still like to use their definition of social justice. So there have been many different definitions and a very long history when it comes to the term and meaning and understanding of social justice. So it can mean a lot of different things for different people. Uh, but the DC Coalition defines social justice as encouraging tolerance, freedom, and equity for all people, regardless of race, sex or gender, sexual orientation, class, national origin, language, and or accessibility, whether that be mental or physical. It's really about and the goal of social justice is to ensure equal access to emotional, physical, economic, uh, personal safeties, um, whether that be affordable housing, healthcare, or broader public system benefits.
And I'm not ignoring anyone if you have your hand up. I just have the bar minimized. So you might have to put your little reaction on or take yourself off of mute. I will say that. So again, it can mean a lot of different things for different people. But it's really about examining not only equity, but what does equality mean? What does diversity mean? What does inclusion mean? Like, what are these things meaning and how does it relate to our lived experience in the world? So let's start with this because we found that folks overwhelmingly start to conflate language over time. We start to say race and ethnicity as if they're the same thing and they're very different and they present in different ways. We start to say prejudice and bias as if they're the same thing and they have different uh, ramifications sometimes for how they impact people. So what is race? Why do we talk about it? Why do we need to talk about it? Where did it come from? What's race? And again, take yourselves off of mute or use a chat. What is it? What's race? Don't be shy. This is not time to be shy, but no, no need for that. Let's go ahead and jump in. All right, I see some comments coming through. So race is socially constructed, category designed to privilege certain groups over others. All right, I'll take that. Um, social construct that's changed over time, absolutely. Shortcut to cast, I love that, William. Any other thoughts? What's race? Where'd it come from? Why do we need to talk about it? even though it might be uncomfortable to talk about sometimes. Identified by immutable characteristics, even if socially constructed. All right, I like that. So I'll take all of that. So race is, social, is a social political construct. So it's a made up thing. It's socially constructed and is culturally enforced. And it largely refers to the social or cultural physical characteristics attributed to a people, so when we think of race, we tend to think of skin color or body structure or jaw structure, for instance. Um, as some other comments, colonizers coming into contact with others, made up thing by white folks, social construct doesn't have anything to do with biology, even though for many, many, many years and decades, we were absolutely told if you are of a different race, you are intellectually different, you experience pain differently, we're all these other things, even though that's not true. Uh, biologically, we're almost all the same biologically in our DNA. So it's a made up thing. It's a social con it's a social political construct. It's culturally enforced. Um, and again, it's really important to think about where, where race as, as a part of our language became, like where did it start? Because folks have looked different for a long time, but race as a term and encoded in our language didn't become encoded until the 1580s. So again, race only became a real thing when folks needed to decide who was property and who could sell that property. Because again, even slavery had been around for a long time, but it wasn't based on race. It was based on, okay, my village conquered your village. So now we're going to enslave you and capture you and use you for a dental servitude or whatever. But it wasn't to say, oh, you're black. So I'm gonna make you a slave, but that's what it became. All right, got that out the way, social political construct, but culturally enforced. What's ethnicity? Why is it different from race? 
Ethnicity has more to do with culture, absolutely. What else? Why is it important to really understand the differences between race and ethnicity? So ethnicity is a population whose members identify with each other on the basis of common nationality, shared cultural traditions, beliefs, languages. Um, we had a comment, I associate with different regions of the world, yes, uh, is a unique characteristics of a group or people um, with common characteristics, absolutely. So my quick example, uh, my fiance and I both identify as black, but I identify as black American, he identifies as Haitian American, to different backgrounds culturally, different languages, different foods, different religious practices, different experiences with both slavery and freedom. Um, and so when we have, we have to understand that just because someone shows up, like I might present as black, that doesn't mean ethnically, I simply identify as black American. All right, so we got race, it's a made up thing, social, culturally enforced, ethnicity has a lot more to do with the ties that bind us together. What then is, oh, Actually, here's a clear example of how ethnicity can show up for some, for some folks. So again, we see how language just so easily gets conflated. Um, Hispanic usually refers to those who speak Spanish, while Latino or Latina usually refers to geography, such as Latin American, Caribbean, South American, or Central American. The usage, though, has, been in, has become interchangeable for a lot of folks, even though it's still generally based on region. Um, quick example, someone from Brazil is Latinx, but not Hispanic. Why is that? Because they don't speak Spanish. The language. Exactly. They don't speak Spanish. They weren't colonized by the Spanish. They speak Portuguese. Absolutely. Different experiences, again, with both slavery and freedom and cultural practices. Um, and so... We don't, again, we don't want to just view someone and think, oh, they must be this because they can present differently in the world. You let folks self-identify when it comes to their ethnicity, especially. Um, so then we have culture. What is culture? Can you have more than one? How easy is it to flow in and out of different cultures? Why do we need to talk about culture? Well, culture can be also the ties that bind you, whether that's religion, language, um, but you may not all be from a, a certain ethnic group. You may not all be from a certain region. So for example, if I was deaf, you know, and I knew sign language um, and, I, and I spoke sign language, there's, a cult there's also a culture around sign language. Yeah, I love that, thank you. So I'm going to stem off your point. That's a great example, right? So you can have cultures within cultures. Uh, we have deaf culture. Within that, there's Black deaf culture, right? Like there are different um, signs and signals that folks will use as part of African-American vernacular within deaf culture, right? So like understanding you can have a work culture you're living in, a school culture you're living in, your community versus your family culture. Like there's so many different ways to express. 
Um, and I love that you don't have to come from the same racial group or eth ethnic group to be in culture, in a cultural practice with someone. Um, yes, so let me not get onto a tangent because I was about to, let me keep going. So great example, a body of beliefs, ideas, or ideals used for cohesion and conformity. A lot of times they are setting the stage for understanding of uh, gender norms, of our relationships, of friendships, of workplace dynamics. Those are sort of the ground rules that we use to know how do we just move through society. All right, we got those out the way. Those are easy. What's prejudice? Because it comes up all the time, right? Like, when you always hear prejudice, stereotypes, bias, but like, what is it actually? What is prejudice? So easiest definition is a preconceived opinion without just grounds and before sufficient knowledge. And that can be either implicit or explicit. Now, let me put a pin in that. What's bias? So if we have before just grounds and without sufficient knowledge, what's bias? Because it's similar, a little different though. Um, an opinion in favor or against a thing or a person, yes. Oh, go back to the prejudice screen. So prejudice is a preconceived opinion without just grounds and before sufficient knowledge. So no real background about the thing that you might have prejudice against, no real interaction. What then is bias? Taking action on your prejudices sometimes, absolutely can be related to behavior. It can also be related to uh, your thought process. Ah, here we go. Assuming based on previous experience. And that's where the slight difference comes in a little bit more when you think about bias. So bias is a tendency, inclination, or prejudice towards or against something or someone. Biases are often based on stereotypes rather than actual knowledge of an individual or circumstance but you may, have, you may have had some interaction. So here's um, my quick example. So let's say Donna's like, Ayana, let's go to the St. Patrick's Day party. It's gonna be so fun. I know you love to dance. I know you love food. Like we're gonna have a great time. I'm like, yeah, Donna, um, we can go. And then she said, well, Ayana, I did wanna say like, there are gonna be some leprechauns there and I don't know how it's gonna go, but I think it's gonna be a blast. Let's go check it out. I say, Donna, I don't wanna go to that party. I heard leprechauns are greedy. I heard they're angry. I heard they're just like, they just do too much. Like they cause trouble. I'm not gonna go deal with them. And Donna says in a very trauma-informed, empathetic, survivor-centered way, well, Ayana, have you ever had experience with leprechauns? Because I'm, I'm sort of surprised to hear you say this. What's going on? Let's unpack it a little bit. And I say, well, no, I've never had experience, but my uncle and my cousin, they did before. And they told me, or I saw it on that movie that one time, or I saw it on TV and the news, and that's how I know I just don't want to deal with it. I don't want, even want to have to think about it. That's prejudice. Bias, we have the same conversation. Ayana, let's go turn up. It's going to be great. It's going to be, it's going to be a good time. I say, well, no, Donna, because remember last year we went to the party, that one leprechaun that was there caused trouble. I don't want to have to deal with anybody like him. I'm just not going to go. 
that's bias. Still, still very limited interaction, but you might have had some interaction. Um, but again, oversimplification of who the person is has a lot to do with prejudice, a lot to do with stereotypes, and a lot to do with the ways in which implicit bias and our implicit conditioning has really led to who we think of people as. Um, so quick example, but we can also give some more if folks need just more context. Um, so then we have stereotypes. Stereotypes are widely held, but fixed and oversimplified images or ideas of a particular type of person, group, or thing. My quick example or of a just easy stereotype that many folks have probably heard at this point is that all Black people like fried chicken. Now, fried chicken is and can be very delicious. However, that does not mean that, and I'll just keep it to a US context, that does not mean that every Black person in the US Number one comes from a black Southern tradition where they would eat fried chicken in their food as their part of their meal. Two, identifies as black America. Cause I know my best friend, Ashley, her family's from Grenada in the Caribbean. They don't eat fried chicken. They eat ackee and saltfish for Thanksgiving, right? It's like understanding that culture comes in differently. It's not accounting for the fact that not every black person is Christian and eats meat or is a meat eater to begin with. That there are cultural and religious um, assumptions that are often made with these stereotypes. Um, so again, really thinking about when something is oversimplified, just seems so easy and straightforward, understanding there are a lot of different contextual pieces that you could add to it. Um, something we also see when we think about stereotypes, when we see what happens with survivors all the time. Oh, they were asking for it. Well, why didn't you leave? Why'd you get so drunk? Why were you wearing that? Why do you keep going back if they're really abusing you? You must not really be a victim. Like all these different assumptions or prejudices or biases that get brought into uh, brought into folks' lives that really they had nothing to do with. Um, and again, stereotypes are largely, but not totally derived from pop culture, music, media, movies, television, the news, um, but we definitely learn it from our families. We learn it from our friends. We learn it from larger societal experiences. We learn it when textbooks are rewritten to say that slaves were happy and well-fed, right? Like we learn all these different things. So really when we're doing diversity, when we're doing any type of inclusion or equity work to understand that this is all a learning and unlearning process. And it's gonna take some time when you do it, when you do it well. Um, and so again, stereotypes, be mindful. Based on a stereotype, someone would look at this picture and automatically assume that Snoop Dogg is the convicted felon when really it's Martha Stewart. Now, they happen to be great friends. They had a really funny TV show on. That's besides the point. Again, be in check with what stereotypes are coming up. Be in check with um, some of those biases that might be coming up. And I have a clip here that I want to show, um, not the whole thing. I will make sure you guys get the link so you can watch it all, but it's a really good exploration of what imp implicit bias is and how it shows up for folks. So we're going to watch it together and then we'll keep moving.
the argument that I want to make is that the way that we currently think about, talk about, and act on issues of racial bias and other lines of difference in this country is woefully inadequate and it's incomplete. The way we think about, talk about, and act on issues of racial bias and other lines of difference in this country is woefully inadequate and it's incomplete. And in making this case, I want to build on the very robust and compelling evidence that has been coming out of the science community for the past 10 plus years that suggests that if we want to move to a radically different place, a radically better place on issues of race and difference in this country, we have to pay attention to something called implicit bias. So what is implicit bias? Oprah Winfrey has talked about it. Malcolm Gladwell has written about it. Normally we say when Oprah is talking about it and Malcolm is writing about it, everybody knows about it, which isn't always the case. So a bias is a preference for or a prejudice against a person or a group of people. There are three characteristics that make a bias implicit. Characteristic number one, implicit biases operate at the subconscious level, outside of conscious awareness. We don't know that we have them and they can't be accessed through introspection. In other words, the science of implicit bias says that none of us can sit here in this room right now, scratch our heads and wonder out loud, do I have a bias against men, against women, against black people, against white people, against immigrants? and expect to accurately answer that question because the nature of an implicit bias is such that we don't know that we have it. Characteristic number two, implicit biases oftentimes run contrary, contrary to our conscious stated beliefs about who we are as human beings and what our values are. In other words, the science of implicit bias says that you can be a school administrator and say that you are deeply committed to nurturing and building up young people and yet be the same school administrator who leads your school in high rates of suspensions and expulsions of young people and both of those things would be true consciously you're deeply committed to building young people up unconsciously you're doing harm in the process the science of implicit bias says that you can be a law enforcement officer deeply committed to the mantra that appears on the side of police vehicles that says what? Protect and serve. And yet be the same law enforcement officer who leads your precinct or your district in high rates of stops and frisks of young men of color. And both of those things would be true. Consciously, you're deeply committed to the principles of protecting and serving. Unconsciously, your behavior is inconsistent. The third characteristic that makes a bias implicit is that implicit biases are triggered through rapid and automatic mental associations that we make between people, ideas, and objects and the attitudes and stereotypes that we hold about those so case in point, I want to do a quick exercise.
exercise. And we can actually stop it there, Tenzin. Of mental association. So in a minute. So again, I'll make sure you all have that link. I usually stop it there because I tend to actually do the activity he would do, but I am not going to for time's sake. And I want us to get to some other things. Um, but he was really just going over the activity where it's basically a name association game. So when you say black women, all the different stereotypes and tropes and language that's used to describe black women, like we can very easily rattle those off. When you say survivor, you can very easily rattle off all these different identifiers and names and signals and biases that come up with survivors. When you say abuser, like, right? So like there are certain things that we automatically make assumptions with. When you say violence in the black community, there's already an image that's going to come to mind about who's causing violence and who's, who's, who's being impacted by that violence, right? And again, when you're unpacking implicit bias, especially because I've been doing, like you have to do the work. It's really uncomfortable sometimes. But when you're unpacking it to understand you're not thinking about folks or places or whatever because you're a bad person. You're thinking about it because you've been taught to think about those people and those places in that way. So again, it's a learning and unlearning process that has to happen. And I wanted us to get to the term, uh, the concept of misogynoir. So misogynoir is a term coined by queer Black feminist and scholar Moya Bailey back in 2010 to describe the specific ways in which racism and misogyny combine to oppress Black women. So the way I think about it is, how does misogyny and Black womanhood collide? And what's the ramification from that collision? So anybody can get, can anybody give us some examples of what misogynoir is, what it looks like, the impact it has on Black women and girls? Any examples, any thoughts? Now I can start. So quick example of what misogynoir is and how it always shows up is back in 2004, Don Imus feeling entitled enough to call the Black women on the Rutgers basketball team nappy-headed hoes on live radio. It's the constant and still very ongoing attacks of former First Lady Michelle Obama, who was called everything from ugly to mannish to ghetto to clashless to uneducated, even though she is one of the most educated First Ladies we've ever had in our history. I'm trying to see. Um, Tencent, I might need you to help me with the chat. Um, it's Jasmine Hidley back in 2018, who was arrested after she, she was arrested at the social services department after she sat on the floor because there were no more chairs and she had been standing with her toddler son for several hours trying to get benefits. And she was arrested simply for sitting on the floor. What else is it? And I know I saw some comments come through. Do you want me to read them? Yeah, go ahead, Tenzin. Okay. Uh, one is, um, um, holding Black women to a higher standard in professional and political settings. Um, Absolutely. Higher, mm -hmm. Go ahead. Higher uh, maternal mortality rates for Black women because of bias and prejudice by medical providers. Um, Democratic Party ignoring the needs and input of Black women, uh, Serena Williams, and that she's angry and aggressive. Yes, thank you. All of those, right? 
Like the fact that Serena Williams is one of the greatest athletes of our time and is constantly like her, her competitors will literally do the same thing she does be, you know, explosive or upset after a really good shot or she's heated in the moment she's riled up and she's automatically called angry and bitter while they're called passionate and champions and whatever. The fact that she is overwhelmingly drug tested at a higher rate compared to all of the other folks that she competes against because they cannot conceptualize how this black woman is doing so well without some, some type of enhancement. And she's been talking about it for years and years that that's her experience. What else is it? There's um, black women being policed on clothing and attitude easily categorized as ghetto and unprofessional but same attributes are praised or acceptable when adorned by non-Black women. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Even thinking about, um, she was called Teacher Bay because she basically gained notoriety where she had some jeans and a loose fitting t-shirt on and people were body shaming her online saying how, how inappropriate is it for her to have those big hips near children? Like what? Like she cannot control her body, but you're trying to police it? Um, so really thinking about, again, how does misogynoir show up? How does it discreetly show up? How does it very loudly and blatantly show up? Because it's always really the underlying thing that Black women are constantly having to navigate. It's, you know, misogynoir is what happened to Marissa Alexander, what happened to Satoya Brown, what happened to the many, many, many missing Black women and girls across the country who don't even get an Amber Alert because we're seen as runaways or we're seen as uh, not vic not real victims or you know they their parents must just be negligent. People aren't really looking into what's happening to girls. And so when we think about how do we challenge the status quo, how do we shift the narrative about Black womanhood and trauma? How do we make sure folks are really understanding and being fully engaged in what we need to do? Um, again, a lot comes up. So. Racialized sexual tropes emerged during the slave eras for sure, but have continued to be perpetuated and passed down from generation to generation. Um, the myth of the overbearing matriarch, the mammy and the Jezebel imagery all came directly out of slavery. The matriarch was seen as overbearing, uh, drove men away, was a workhorse, could reproduce, but wasn't desirable. We then had the mammy, always think Shirley Temple era, uh, but the mammy, she was seen as the happy slave, loved to serve, happy with her station in life, was largely asexual, and she was the one that was bre breastfeeding the plantation owner's babies before she was allowed to breastfeed her own babies. Uh, and then the uh, Jezebel image, she was seen as hypersexual, av sexually available and indiscriminate, flirtatious. Um, this trope is usually associated to lighter skinned Black women who are seen as who are typically seen as more desirable um, to the masses. Then we have the Jezebel, I'm sorry, we have the welfare queen, the sapphire and the black superwoman imagery uh, came closer to the civil rights movement and the war on drugs. I definitely encourage folks to just do some quick research around that time period because you'll find some really interesting policies and tropes that came and language that came out of it. Uh, but we have the welfare queen, um, she was seen as lazy, scamming the system, doesn't want to work, but wants to have a whole bunch of kids and rely on the system to take care of her kids. Uh, the Sapphire, she is really the Neo Jezebel image. 
Uh, she's loud, angry, exploits men for money. Basically, this is where the gold digger trope comes from. And then the black superwoman who can, will, and wants to do it all, doesn't need a partner, doesn't need a man, doesn't need anybody because she's going to figure it out and she'll be all right. Seemingly the most positive of the others, but very limiting in terms of what black women are then allowed to ask for or ask for help or seen, be seen as vulnerable. Um, and then the overarching that can be applied to any black woman at any time is the angry, better black women. Now, as smiley and non-confrontational non as I tend to be just in everyday life, literally the moment I disagree or push back or challenge, I could be very quickly labeled the angry black woman. And so that what that does is keep black women in their place. It keeps black women from being too vocal, being too visible, being too out there, sharing their information. Like it keeps black women in our place. And so to really be in check with and really be in tune with uh, the different tropes that black women have to, that black women are constantly experiencing and negotiating and navigating, like even as a non-black person, as, as an ally to recognize that that's someone's experience um, and then be able to have conversation with them about it potentially, like that goes a long way. Just for someone to acknowledge, I know that these labels are, could easily be attributed to you. What can I do to best support you? And I love this image um, for many different reasons, but let's go ahead and think about this. If we could create or we could map out the archetype of the norm, who is the most normalized person in American society, what would that person look like? How would they show up in the world? So the most normalized person in our society, how they show up. Just go ahead and throw some out there, y'all. Don't be shy. So some things we typically see are fo things folks will typically name. Uh, male, straight, cisgender, attractive, able-bodied, uh, neurotypical, US citizen, American-born, uh, English-speaking, generally without an accent now, I will say certain accents are more acceptable than others in our society. Um, college educated, working, employed, no contact with the prison system, hasn't been in foster care, isn't adopted, hasn't used drugs. What else? That's a pretty good list, right? Like those are, those are a lot of things that, and that's a very, that gets, that box gets more and more narrow, right? Like most folks in our society are not gonna be able to have all those boxes checked off. And so to understand that certain folks are deemed the norm and then what happens to everybody else? You become the other, right? If you're not the norm, you then become the other. And the further you move from being considered the norm, the more marginalized you become, the more ignored you, you are, the more silenced you are, your community might become. And so to recognize that whatever privilege or power that you hold, however close to the norm you might be or not, 
there's always ways to leverage that power and privilege to make sure other folks have a little bit of act or at least a little bit of the same access that you might. And so I like this um, infographic because when we think about how are these norms then maintained, like how do we continue to know who's the norm versus who's the other, a lot of it has to do with that second ring from the middle, that darker green ring. All the isms keep us in line, right? Ableism, racism, discrimination, ageism, transphobia, classism. Those are, those are sort of uh, the guidelines for, again, who's the norm and who's not. And so then what happens to folks as they have to navigate different systems that might not have been designed for them because they are far removed from being considered the norm? What happens to folks then? Think about the education system. What happens there? The fact that certain schools in 2021 do not have heat or books, but children are supposed to learn the same way. I'm in Baltimore City and we just a couple of weeks ago had some schools closed because there was no AC in 2021, but then we're upset that children are out of school and on the streets and in their community and might be doing whatever. We have to think about the prison to school pipe or the school to prison pipeline how both black girls and black boys and children of color are by the layout of the school, the design of the school, the policies, implicit bias, how that shows up are absolutely on a trajectory to being in prison. We think about the prison system. What, when we, what we've seen overwhelmingly with mass incarceration of black men, over incarceration of trans folks, and the many, many different layers of violence they'll then have to experience in that system. When we think about uh, child welfare and the overrepresentation of children of color there, and what's happening then to trafficking survivors who are being lost in that gap. When we think about capitalism in our economy, even, I mean, that, that was something that was really highlighted when COVID hit, right? Of like, who are the essential workers? How much are they getting paid? Why would some folks rather stay on unemployment than go back to work, right? Like we have to have those conversations, even the call for stay safe at home. A lot of folks were out at work. They didn't have the same level of benefits or salary to stay home and stay safe that way. So recognizing that folks are accessing and living with different levels of access or privilege or power like we have to understand that even when we're helpers, even when we're advocates, even when we're operating from best intentions, that we might still bring in these different pieces, pieces as we do our work. And intersectionality is one of, <laughs> by far one of my favorite things to talk about and to envision. Um, it's a term that was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw and it's a framework designed to explore the dynamics between identities and what she called connected systems of oppression. So the relationship, for instance, between race, class, and gender with patriarchy, white supremacy, and capitalism. How are these things colliding? What's the interplay? What's the, what's the outcome? And Tenzin, I just want to show the first and third video for this. Um, but these videos are from raceforward.org. It's a really great resource. I really like a lot of their stuff they use. Um, and it's also available on YouTube. Just type in hashtag race and, and it'll pull up a whole bunch of videos. Highly encourage folks to watch them. I know I sat down one day and just watched as many as I could. 
because it's just a really great way to think about intersectionality, especially when it's not your lived experience. So we're going to watch these and then we'll keep going. Diana, you said first and the third, right? Yes. Dina Saka, migrant here, poet, culture organizer. Race and gender, race and immigration status, race and sexuality, everything in every way that I'm negotiating my space and the way that I'm accessing space um, is in relation to how the United States of America is seeing me um, as this brown woman, as this foreign, as this migrant, as this person with an accent, as this person who's perceived femme or woman, I can come up here and identify as a white woman, but that is not gonna, that is not the reality. Migrant spaces, we're fighting for immigration rights, getting that DREAM Act or getting that, you know, CIR, don't talk about, you know, your reproductive rights or don't talk about your queerness, doesn't even take into consideration economic class, doesn't take into consideration how very English-centered it is. How are we fighting for immigration rights and your own, most of your pamphlets are in English? Like, that doesn't make sense. And then in queer spaces, there's been the neglect to, you know, to acknowledge immigration or even, you know, undocumented status. And then in a general sense, my identity and as an artist and a poet, that is always erased in many spaces. We are always doing reactionary work. We are always doing, you know, fighting against this or fighting against something. But when it comes to artists, we are always left behind. That's one of the reasons many of us burn out because there's no recognizing all, of all of our identities and showing up as Hobians and showing up as, as complicated individuals. You know, in this country, what I've noticed is immigration reform has always been about the access to whiteness. Example, we have two borders, you know, which border is racialized, which border has is more militarized, which border exists within like coded racial coded language. That's usually the Mexican border, right? And there's this dismiss of that there's a border right with Canada. Many movements that are advocating for undocumented communities, they're always leaving out Black migrants. Look at all the campaigns, look at the, even the posters, there's one sort of depiction of, of immigration and migrants that is very coded under who is now being acceptable to kind of uplift white supremacy or whiteness or a certain identity of citizenship in this country. So, and that's many brown communities. I mean, there's the reason why there's anti-Blackness within migrant spaces and, and non-Black people of color spaces. There's always going to be a policy that is going to be shifted, but at the core of it, non-white bodies are always going to be seen as quote-unquote illegal, as not having any legality in this country. All of my identities are intertwined. I think that having to negotiate with any of them is not going to take us anywhere to the journey of liberation or radicalness or progressiveness that we are actually trying to do. If anything, is is the erasure of what has led us here. Lady Dane Figueroa Aditi, performance artist, goddess, ancient jazz priestess of Mother Africa. Race and gender, race and class. So I'm a Black, Indigenous, Cuban, Nigerian, American woman 
who's trans. I'm the daughter of an immigrant. I come from the ghettos of Baltimore. People have to understand what all of the histories of all of those identities in order to understand really my positionality within the world. They're poor black people, they're rich black people, they're black cis women, they're black trans women. And so intersectionality is telling us that we have to discuss race in particular, right? Like, cause that's the topic that I'm using. Like if we're talking about race that we have to talk about it in its full scope. Yes, we are sharing an experience because for example, two black people, we are sharing this experience because we're both black, but I'm a black trans woman. And so numbers don't lie. And we all know that black trans women um, in particular are some of the most marginalized in our community and the most affected by structural, structural oppression. There's this concept that we are all given the same opportunities, but it's not true. If we look historically and we talk about, you know, this idea of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, Black people actually did pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But we then have places like Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921. There was thriving Black neighborhoods, Black people buying from Black businesses, owning Black businesses, investing in Black businesses. And right, and that's what they're told. All you have to do is be rich and nobody can ever hurt you again. All you have to do is buy into the system and move upward and you'll be safe. What then happened was their white neighbors would then come and literally commit acts of genocide. And so now today, right, we have people who could have had old money going down poor. And so what is that psychologically saying to these people that when you thrive, when you succeed, you're still not safe. And so we're talking about race and class, and we're not understanding the history of race and class as it presents itself in America in particular, because that's where we're living, right? And we're having a fool's conversation. If someone comes to me and they say to me, you are creating differences. I would say, no, that's actually not true. Because in my indigenous cultures, people who were different were still essential to society. Within European cultures, particularly within the rise of uh, patriarchy and the way that it manifests through religion, is that differences, little by little, were no longer celebrated and they were stamped out. And the one thing that, that structural oppression gives us that we should all aspire to generally is of a cis, het, white man. So when we're talking about intersectionality, right, I'm always being an intersectional being because I'm all of these things always at once. If you're having a conversation with me and you are having, you're not having a conversation understanding um, that I come with all of those identities within the conversation, then how are we supposed to move forward?
just pull my slides back up. Any thoughts before I move on? Any thoughts about those videos? I think, um, so I will say Lady Dame by far is one of my favorites from the series. Um, but one thing that she says that I really think stands out is that even when you have a shared common experience, that again, your lived experiences based on your identities can be that dramatic difference. So to Black women, we might have the same experience generally because we're both Black women, but I was raised middle class. I may have completely different, uh, raised middle class by two lawyers who grew up out of poverty, right? Like I may have had a completely different experience than somebody else. Then definitely a different experience from a black trans woman. Definitely different um, perceptions, different biases are put towards me versus her, right? Like even thinking about language that's used, inclusion, like there's so many different things that can come up. But again, it's really important, let folks self-identify, let folks tell their story, let folks um, tell it in the ways they need to say it. Now you can talk with them later about, hey, maybe you don't want to drop the F-bomb in court, but like here together in our office, like if that's the way you need to express, let them do it. Let, so you get a real full picture of what they're actually saying to you. Um, and what's really important again to remember as well is that with the different intersections in our lives or with those different identities, there are also increased vulnerabilities many times. So if, if it's the intersections of poverty, health disparities, mental health access, education, um, uh, I have again poverty, but the criminal legal system as well, what's happening to and with folks as they navigate these different realities. Um, we've seen that in the black community, I'm not gonna go into this too much, but I highly encourage folks to look into this concept, but we've seen in the black community that with multi-generational trauma together with continued oppression and in the absence of opportunities to heal or access benefits available to other folks in our society has largely resulted in post-traumatic slave syndrome for folks in the black community. Now, again, not gonna go too much into it, but it's really important to open up our understanding of what trauma is, how it shows up, how it's passed down from generation to generation. Like it's literally, there's literally like so much research into how trauma can change our DNA. Like we have to start talking about these things more because we're gonna start to see that it's not someone wanting to be difficult. It's there may be a lack of trust there. There might be trauma that's coming up that they haven't even recognized yet. Um, so, and again, this is me about to go into my tangents, but I do wanna say like even our understanding of why certain folks will wanna engage with systems or not, it has nothing to do with you as a person a lot of times. It has everything to do with their understanding, their interaction, their lived experience with the system. But it can have to do, it can, do with you if you're not checking implicit bias when it's coming up, if you're not checking in with your coworkers to make sure, okay, I saw harm done here. How can we do better next time? How can we make some repairs? How can we make some amends so that people know like we're not out to harm you, we're really here to help you. And that's what we're really here for. Um, and I like this 
meme here. I guess it's a meme caption um, that says, use caution when describing barriers. Being black is not a barrier for me. White supremacy is the barrier. Being female is not a barrier for me. Patriarchy is the barrier. Name the systems of power. And again, when, we, when we're doing this work, it's really easy to get into, oh, well, they're black, so they, they're probably gonna experience these things. And it almost becomes victim blaming. What we wanna do is acknowledge, hey, the system has been created or set up or these policies have not been revised in the way they should. We recognize that there are some gaps. How can we navigate around that? And we also have to really make sure we're using the language of polyvictimization. Uh, polyvictimization refers to having experienced multiple layers of victimization or multiple layers of trauma, such as sexual abuse, physical violence, bullying, and exposure to family violence, rather than multiple incidents of the same form of violence, if that makes sense. So we're talking again about those intersections versus multiple, inc multiple incidents of sexual violence alone, for instance. Um, and so qu some questions to really think about and have conversation together, uh, what types of trauma may a survivor experience before interacting with your program? And then how are survivors further or re-traumatized when receiving services for DV or SA? So someone might come in and they've already experienced domestic violence, they've already experienced sexual violence, they were bullied as a child, they experienced uh, violence in the education system, uh, they might have had to go to foster care because of some things that were happening. They come with all that stuff. They might not articulate it to you because they might be there for domestic violence, but what then happens to them as they become introduced to new systems, if you're a mandated reporter and you're reporting because you've asked certain questions, like really, it's really important to think about where are we putting people when they come to us for a specific thing? Or what's happening to folks when they come to us for DV and they're asking for help and they want their children to be safe, but then because of the ways in which policies are written or whatever, I'm specifically thinking about childcare um, and how a lot of times in shelter specifically, black mothers have child protective services called on them for leaving their child in the room, for instance, and how that's totally introducing them to a whole new system that they really don't need to be a part of simply because it's easier just to call than to actually have to work with somebody. But again, that's a tangent, let me move on. So, great, we have a couple minutes. I do want us to show Tanira Kane's video. If anyone ever gets a chance to listen to her or see her in person, take it. She is phenomenal. She's a survivor who now does uh, trauma-informed work specifically. Um, and it goes over her story a little bit. Um, I think her story is still available on YouTube where it was. Well, I, as a child, I was sexually abused, um, married off to an older man at a very young age, experiencing domestic violence. I was a victim of neglect and abandonment by my mother. So I was always treated like I was worthless. And this is how things supposed to be happening in my life. 
and I needed to find a way to cope with my reality. I mean, at age nine, I was experiencing sexuality, sexuality that you're not even supposed to. Who, who's to do that to a nine-year-old? Moving into foster care, taken from foster care by my mom, just so she can marry me off to an older man who beat me constantly. I needed to find a way to cope with that or I would have killed myself. And I used drugs and alcohol to do it. Unfortunately for me, it introduced me to different public health systems. In a mental health institution, I was always thrown into seclusion. One of the worst things you can do to somebody that's a victim of neglect and abandonment. One of the worst things, because that's how I was always treated by my mother. And now you're gonna do it? So when someone come with their trail medication or trail food, I smacked it out of my face because the only thing I know to do is to tap into my survival mode because no one has taught me to do anything different. No one has identified, addressed or treat my trauma. So I do the only thing I know to do and that is to tap into my survival mode. And my survival mode has always told me to fight because I didn't know there was any other way. So I did what I had to do to cope. And sometimes somebody might got hit with the tray when I smacked it. So now they're calling a code and they're throwing me down to the ground, restraining me, a rape victim, holding me down and restraining me. Somebody that has been held down and raped multiple times, doing more harm, causing more trauma. But because my chart says that I'm a crazy crackhead, stigma. That's what they go by. That's what they go by. And unfortunately, I, I was re-traumatized, taking me even further away from the possibility of healing and recovery. I was a desperate child, still trying to tell somebody what happened to me. Still trying to find somebody safe enough to tell what happened to me. You know, we go to these facilities and they give us the tidbits of good information but most of us have so much trauma packed so tightly the bits and pieces of information can't get down there to get rooted we got to get the stuff out of us so we can get the good stuff in us so we can change our belief system because once our belief system change our thought process change and we start to make the best decisions in our life we can't do that if you still believe that we are crazy crackheads 2004, um, I was in prison with my daughter. And I was terrified I was about to lose another baby. I didn't know how I was going to do that. And they kept telling me about a program that addressed your trauma with your addiction and your mental health. I said, well, I'm all those things and I'm pregnant. And I still, but you know what? I still didn't really have that. I didn't have high hopes. I did it because I wanted to keep my daughter. I didn't do it for anything else because they sent me to so many different programs one where I was court ordered and the drug counselor raped me. So how do I believe that anything would have worked? Really? The court ordered me to a program where I graduate and I was doing well. And then when I went back for aftercare, the counselor raped me. So I really didn't have high hopes after 19 years of going in and out of the systems that I could do better. But I was all I could see was me trying to keep my daughter. And when I walked through the doors of Tamar's children, somebody said, I'm so glad you're here. After 19 years of people shaking their head in disgust at me, 
and just saying, you're just a crazy crackhead and, and, and hurting me over and over again. Somebody told me they were glad to see me. And yes, they did. They dug deep and they worked with me one-on-one -on -one to help me to deal with what happened to me, not what, what was wrong with me, but what happened to me. And they did it right. And it was a one-stop shop because understanding that I was homeless, they made sure I had a housing grant. They made sure somebody was attached to the housing grant that came out and visited me once a week to help, help me to create a budget and, 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 and make sure that I was taking care of the property and my daughter. And I was okay with that. Some women say, oh, they all up in my business. I needed somebody to be up in my business. Some, and they, were, they weren't judgmental. They understood. And they helped me. Truly breaking the cycle. Because that's what the real picture is about. Yeah. Treat my trauma or, you know, remove the stigma to keep me out of your system. Yes. Love that. But did you know that doing that was going to break the cycle for my daughter? She would be able to be given what she was given as a result. So we look at a whole different path from here on out for my daughter and her kids and their kids. And we can go ahead and stop it there. I got to understand. And so again, when you're doing your work to remember, and I will say the more I've learned about trauma, the not easier it's been for me to do the work, but the more invested I've been in doing the work and, um, and not moving away from it when things get a little bit difficult. But really thinking about, again, how does trauma show up? How is it gonna show up in your office? How is it gonna lead folks to not show up in your office? Um, you know, thinking about what might spark somebody up or what might uh, trigger someone, as people usually trigger, what might trigger someone as they're working with you? How can you de-escalate those things? Like all of that goes into our response um, when we're working with survivors. So I kind of wanted to end this off really thinking about power and microaggressions as well, um, because I've seen most times inadvertently microaggressions pop up in some really interesting and harmful ways. Um, so they show up in three different ways typically. We have micro assaults, which are usually more conscious and intentional actions, such as using a slur or racist language or displaying a swastika or noose, for example, are really thought of as like old school racism. Um, then we have micro insults and micro invalidations, which are usually much more subtle and much more unintentional. Um, but micro insults are verbal and nonverbal communications that subtly convey rudeness and insensitivity and demean a person's racial heritage or identity. Um, quick example, my best friend growing up is a dark, my best friend still now is a dark skinned, beautiful dark skinned woman, constantly told, especially in childhood, oh, you're pretty for a dark skinned girl. Not a compliment, it's actually a micro insult because what you're really saying is, I don't think dark-skinned people are usually attractive. You just happen to be the exception. Um, another, well, this is sort of a common, let me get to the micro-invalidation first, but um, micro-invalidations are communications that subtly exclude, negate, or nullify the thoughts, feelings, or experiential reality of someone who's been marginalized. Um, an example of this would be to say, if I'm having a conversation with someone and I feel like they might have been using some micro insults um, against me. And I go up to a friend and I say, hey, so-and-so, 
I was just having a conversation with so-and-so and they said this to me, I feel like it was kind of racist. And the person responds, no, Ayana, I think you're making a big deal out of it. I don't really think that's what they meant. I've never had, a, I've never heard them say anything like, like so problematic before. I think you're just taking it overboard. That's a micro invalidation because they just told you what their experience of that person was and you completely ignored it because it wasn't your experience. Doesn't have to be your experience to still validate what they're saying. And then you can still explore it if you want or try to make amends or try to build, bridge some things, but don't simply ignore it because that wasn't your lived experience. Um, so an example of it's sort of, it was really a combination of, the, of both micro-insult and micro-invalidation. Um, I'm thinking of a, of a survivor that I worked with in shelter. Um, she was in her probably around that time in her early 60s. She had been homeless for 40 years. Um, she was also an immigrant and we were able, so I was her case manager three times over the course of the time that I worked there because she came back a couple times. Um, we were able to get her into permanent supportive housing, um, but she very, no, first we were able to get her into temporary housing, but she very quickly exited the program. And so she went back with her abusive partner. She was trying to work things out because she felt safer in that relationship than she did in that housing program. Um, but when she came back to shelter, the first thing one of my managers said to me is, oh, she's back. This is ridiculous. She's never going to get out of her homelessness. She just wants to live with this guy. She's never going to work it out. She's too invested in her marijuana. Like she's never going to leave it alone to actually stay in her housing program. Um, I don't, I'm not sure what else we can really do for her if she's still, if she keeps deciding to go back. And I very just quickly turned to her and said, oh, so we're victim blaming now. And like, that was the end of my conversation. We're victim blaming. Okay, cool. We're on the same page. Like, what are we doing that you've taken it upon yourself to determine that this woman who has been homeless for 40 years doesn't deserve housing because she left the program because she wasn't feeling safe. Did you ask her why she wasn't feeling safe? Did you ask her why she was having a hard time staying involved in the program and staying involved with her case manager? Because I asked her and she very quickly told me I didn't feel safe because they wouldn't let me put new locks on the door. I didn't feel safe because I didn't have a cell phone and so I couldn't reach folks that I needed to get and they wouldn't help me get a cell phone. I didn't feel safe because my case manager kept asking me about my marijuana use. And I said, well, can you explore that with me? Like, is this like, what's going on there? And she said, well, it's part of my cultural traditions, part of my religious practice. I said, oh, has, has anyone ever asked you that before? She said, no. In 40 years of her dealing with, the, with homelessness and the housing system, no one had ever asked her was a part of her cultural or religious practice. They automatically assumed she was just a drug user and judged her for that. And they didn't want to give her services and they really didn't want to support her in the way that they could have. Um, and so again, really thinking about when we do that to folks, even when it's unintentional, the real harm we're creating in folks' lives. And again, simply asking questions, exploring with folks, having them tell their story can remove all of these other biases or stereotypes that we come with automatically because we've been taught it in society. And again, acknowledging that you have implicit bias, acknowledging that you might have caused harm does not make you a bad person. There are plenty of cases I can think about in my time in shelter in particular, and I'm like, man, I wish I had been that person, like this person then. 
I wish I had had that knowledge then. I would have done things so differently. I would have um, acted so differently. The relationship could have gone so differently. It's really, again, a learning and unlearning process. You don't know what you don't know until you don't know it, until you realize you don't know it or someone calls it out and then you have to start learning to rebuild from there. And again, really taking the time to get comfortable with anti-oppression principles, anti-oppression work and language, making sure that you're going through, these are just some of the ones that I try to use in practice. So avoiding tokenism and correcting it when it shows up. White allies, we need you to step up when other white allies need to be held accountable. Do not put all the onus on people of color to make the correction. Silence for a lot of folks equals violence. So if you aren't articulating that you're opposed or for something, folks will automatically give you a default setting. Uh, do not tone police black women. Listen, listen fully, listen deeply. If it's the tone that you don't appreciate, take a step back because that can always change when they might feel a little safer with you or feel heard, the tone might change. Uh, apply trauma-informed principles and working with staff as well. So again, we're all coming into this work with different experiences different levels of violence in our lives, different experiences with violence in our lives, different access. Uh, examine language and the histories behind language. So understand that, quick example, I don't say dreads, I say locks because of the history of the language behind it. Folks would say, oh, that's dreadful hair. And that's where that came from. So again, understanding that certain, certain words or language or phrases might trigger or might traumatize or re-traumatize someone. So to have a conversation about it. Um, set some goals and remain thoughtful about follow-up. Don't fall into fragility. And when you do process it and keep going. So the interesting thing about fragility and shame, they're really a distraction from what you're actually trying to do, but process it, keep going. Uh, remember healing is a process for everyone involved. Create space for conversations and continue to reevaluate if those spaces are feeling safe and brave, and if they're not, bring someone in that can facilitate a real conversation for you all. Embrace confrontation. Now, this does not mean go yell at each other in the hallway. What I do mean is get comfortable with productive tension. My coworkers, we're all Black women, and we have very drastically and differing opinions. So we do not always agree, but when we do agree, we one, trust each other that we're gonna make things right if things go bad, that we're all coming into this again with different experiences and different layers, and that productive tension leads to some really great outcomes a lot of times. You can get a lot done when you're trying to be creative and you're trying to find solutions. And then the last thing, of course, change policies and practices where you can and when you can. If there's a policy that's outdated, even if it's a staff policy around a dress code, for instance, change it because it might not be as inclusive as it was meant to be. And then again, tying this all together, I will highly encourage folks, I know we're about to end on our time. I will be back for the 12 o'clock if anyone wants to rejoin. Um, but again, ask each other these questions. You'll get this PowerPoint as well. What's the connection between bias and microaggressions and trauma? How can we foster honest conversations about social justice and the lived experiences of marginalized survivors. And then a big one, how can you begin to leverage whatever power or privilege you might have to best support black survivors? So I really encourage folks to think about those things, have more conversation, 
have like reach out to me if you have questions if you want to talk about something in particular or you have an idea like hey let's talk it out i'm here to do it i'm happy to do it here's my contact information my email is probably the fastest way to get a hold of me and we can always jump on a call after that or a video call i'd love to do it but reach out to me if you have a question comment you're like hey i have this random idea what do you think i love to process it with you all and build space together and support you really any way that i can um, and on that note, I think I'm done. I'm going to turn it back over to Tenzin. Um, I'm not sure if we're going to ask a question or two, but I'm going to turn it back over. But thank you all so much. And I appreciate you. Thank you, Ayana. Um, thank you for this really eye-opening and informative session. Um, I personally learned a lot. And then there's a lot that, um, that I think we as individuals need to keep in mind as we move forward in life and be the better versions of um, ourselves. Um, I know we are right on time, but I would encourage folks to uh, please attend uh, the networking lunch session with Ayana. It starts at 12. Uh, it's a 30 minute uh, long session and the link is on the conference um, website. But uh, thank you, Ayana, thank you so much. Bye, y'all. Thank you. See you at 12 o'clock for anybody that can join.